Toasted Sister. I'm Andy Murphy, host, producer, and creator of the Toasted Sister podcast. I hope you'll enjoy today's episode. This time I talk with Mixteco chef Naftali Duran. He's from Oaxaca, Mexico, and he's part of the I Collective and the Heal Food Alliance. Heal stands for Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor. Naftali was on a previous episode where we talked about food appropriation, and that was episode 12 from June of last year. You can find it in the archives. Now, here's our recent interview. One of the conversations people are having right now are um, of the borders and migrants. Um, and that is, that's your story, right? Absolutely. Uh, I came to the U.S. as a migrant worker in 97, and I've been working in the food system and the restaurant industry ever since, so about uh, 20, a little bit more than 20 years now. If we think about the migration in recent decades as the continuation of, of colonial ways of political and economic policies, they have forced people to migrate. It's, uh, it hasn't changed and it's connected to food. The reality is the, a lot of the policies, including NAFTA and other policies have affected a lot of people in Mexico and Central America and have forced a lot of people to migrate to the US. In a very simple way, what that means for people like me is when you're not able to sustain yourself and your family the same way the people have been doing for thousands of years, the same way uh, your people have been doing for thousands of years, you are forced to migrate. And migration is a very hot topic right now, especially with this uh, with this administration. But uh, what people don't realize that this has been coming for a long time and there's a reason why people need to migrate and has to do with injustices throughout many decades and even centuries. Fortunes have have been made by uh, colonial powers, by growing food, uh, trading with food. You can, you know, let's think about just like three basic ones, uh, chocolate, cacao, sugar, and vanilla per se. There's there's been fortunes made made out of those uh, indigenous crops that has never trickled down to a the justice for the for the farm worker for the indigenous people of of the Americas. Um, but you know when we think of uh, migrant populations already here in the United States, I mean there's thousands, uh, thousands, um, maybe even millions of uh, people who who are already here from other countries. You know sometimes you know that word illegally. But um, how how have these populations uh, had an effect on our food in America? How important are migrants? Well, first of all, I, I like to I like to go back and, and say that a lot of people fought against the word the word illegal, yeah. and it's really sad to see that word come back around as a normal word. If we if we start from the premise that no human being is illegal anywhere, but it's as I said, we're living in really difficult times, and that mm-hmm. word has come around, and it's very uh, sadly has become mainstream again. There are millions of people from other parts of the country, from, from other parts of the world, they are the backbone of the food system in the US. The, a little bit more than 55% of the all the agricultural workers in the US are undocumented from south of the, south of the border. A great portion of that, we're talking about indigenous peoples that have been forced out of their land to come and work in the US. That That is used in the agricultural, in the agricultural system. Now, a, a great portion of the of the restaurant industry 
the backbone of the restaurant industry is also held together by migrant workers. Estimates are there are at least 11 million people, undocumented people live in the U.S. And as I said, it's really important to recognize that a great portion of them are people like me, indigenous people from other parts of from other parts south of the border. If we recognize those borders, and uh, and we're here, and uh, the food system as we know it would, would collapse without this labor. Let's just be realistic about that. The way the food system works right now is so centralized and so uh, interconnected. Every time there is something happens happens in, let's say, in California, it will affect all of us, whether we live live on the East Coast or in the middle of the country. And it, and that that would be the same if there was a labor shortage. And there have been and there have been labor shortages historically. There is a reason why there was a Racero program. There there is a reason why there was slavery. There is a reason why there has been a waves of migration from India to China to other places around the globe. So when we have all uh, people from different parts of the world um, who are growing up eating different flavors, they're, they're eating, you know, the traditional flavors of their homelands and they're coming together here in America and sort of, um, you know, sort of redefining uh, American food. Can you kind of tell me about the beauty of all of this, people coming together with these different flavors and different ideas of cooking food? American food is food from, from everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And a great portion of that, not only the ingredients, but the flavors that come from uh, from other places, are what makes this uh, what makes food in the U.S. so unique and so exciting. A lot of the, a lot of those flavors and a lot of that history and a lot, a lot of that technology is indigenous technology. Just think about a tortilla. A tortilla, you know, you you have to simply ten thousand about nine to ten thousand years ago in central in Oaxaca, southern Mexico. It takes a few, a few, a few thousand years not only to migrate north, all the way north, on south, but it, it, you know, but eventually you have something as beautiful as a tortilla that has thousands of years of history, and now you have tacos in the U.S. that are um, mainstream. Those are the kinds of flavors and the kinds of histories they they have come. They uh, that are the result of indigenous peoples. improving and inventing new technologies for thousands of years. That is the beauty of food, and that is the stories that food can tell us only if we're we're ready to listen. You know, and there's uh, there's so much food that is like that in indigenous communities. They have so much history, not only spiritually, not only nutritionally, but it's part of our culture. It's It's part of who we are, and it's also part of our creation stories. And you mentioned tacos. Um, like you said, it's very mainstream right now. Um, is that something to be celebrated? And is that also something that uh, sort of takes away from, um, you know, the importance of these ingredients like uh, tortillas, uh, chilies, um, uh, you know, the different um, styles of meat that usually go in a taco? I mean, what are, what are maybe some pros and cons of it being so mainstream right now? Everyone's gonna know what a taco is. Slowly but surely, not only has become mainstream, but it also has allowed some people, a small portion of, of migrant workers, to uh, to make a living doing that. The things that are not good about it is they being once it becomes main mainstream, when it once it becomes trendy, most likely 
people who come from those from Oaxaca per se or from Mexico and from other parts of the world they they have those flavors are not gonna benefit fully uh, financially. All the money that has been made on tacos, including that main taco chain, the Glen Bell started. That you know he got he borrowed stole those recipes from a restaurant in a restaurant in California called Meat La Cafe, which still exists and went mainstream. Took a few decades, but now tacos are really popular and there's you know there's what i like to call hipster tacos as opposed to you know a sister in brooklyn selling tacos on the street but the the economic disparities are going to be the same when something becomes popular and something is not protected and something becomes mainstream the people who are benefit who are going to benefit are not necessarily the people who created that so when we talk about um, things like tacos, and now I think it's macaroni and cheese, that's sort of like a sort of like a trend. You keep seeing them popping up all over your social media. Uh, when we when we talk about trends, I've I've heard this discussion on Facebook before about describing indigenous food as you know, a trend. It's starting to become a trend. It's a trend, you know, it's a, it's going to be a trend in the future. I mean, can we link those two words, those two uh, concepts together? I mean, trend and indigenous food? No, indigenous food is not, is not a trend. Indigenous food has been, has been the foundation of, of many different cuisines for a long time. Just think about the, uh, the basic ingredients, the ingredients, the, characterize some of the some of the cuisines tomatoes in italy potatoes in other places uh, chilies all over the world those are ingredients that have been around for a long time and they have been have been developed by indigenous peoples in the americas that is not a trend the fact that we're invisible and that that hasn't been recognized doesn't mean that it's a trend it means it means that there has been they not only has been ignored it has been appropriated over and over and over again now there's going to be an opportunity to call it trendy and sell it back to you in a different package. But that is not what indigenous food is, and that is not what indigenous food should be. From an indigenous perspective, we were talking about uh, access. One of the recent conversations that we were having with the, with the I Collective was about not only, uh, not only food sovereignty, but food access. And I personally strongly believe that we cannot separate those things. We cannot talk about food sovereignty without talking about food access. And what I mean by that is that there is a reason why fried bread exists. There is a reason, there is a reason why a lot of the food that is unhealthy in our communities exists. And there is a reason why we crave those foods. Not only because those, those were foods uh, given to us by the colonizers, but also they have become part of our comfort foods. And we have to be very careful, careful when we talk about comfort foods. What I mean by comfort food is I mean what reminds me of home. It, it has become whatever it is that I, that I eat, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, it, it becomes part of my comfort zone. It becomes part of what reminds me of my grandma, my mom, your family. Those are the things that, that become part of our diets. Within the new, within the, the new movement of indigenous food, it is very important for me to recognize that not all of our peoples have access to the to the indigenous foods as we would like. A couple of examples. Uh, we, we started this conversation by talking about migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Migrant workers who pick most of the food for all of us in the U.S. still don't have access to healthy, affordable food. People who, brothers and sisters who are picking the food don't have access to the food. The repercussions of that 
are really on healthy levels of, of diabetes, hypertension, and all the other things that go along with that. Particularly in the in the indigenous sisters and in the work in the fields, you're gonna see a lot of um, anemia and other and other problems that are preventable and they have to do with food. When when we talk about other foods, let's say maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Maple syrup is delicious. It's an it's you know a na- Native American staple in the, in the north. Yet it's not it's not necessarily one of the cheapest things to uh, to buy. So we cannot expect everyone to buy maple syrup or to be able to go to the supermarket and buy veggies all the time. That's just not the reality of how our community is right now. We have to keep in mind that not everyone has access to those uh, to those foods. With that being said, it, that is just not right. Food is a human right, and everyone should have access to healthy, culturally appropriate food, depending on your peoples. And every and every community is going to be different. There's people that are going to eat more fish. There's there's people there's people that don't eat fish traditionally. There's people that are going to eat wild rice. There's people that have never tasted wild rice. So it's going to be community by community. But we have to start from the perspective that the everyone has should have access to food. And at the same time, that's not the that's not the reality for for everyone. So we have to be not only gentle but compassionate with one another to make sure that we recognize the inequities and we work together in pushing for better for better food for everyone, from the schools to tribal uh, to tribal government to in, anyone that has economic power to buy food. We should be thinking about. Uh, not only implementing uh, tribal programs that include native foods, but they, they also things long term. Generations from now, we want to make sure that uh, we want to make sure the people are eating more more native foods. And one of the way, one of the ways that we can start working towards that goal is to make sure that we talk about it, that, that we talk about, and that we that we create a space for that to start to happen. Yeah, and that leads me to a question about um, like shame, shaming, food shaming. Um, I, I know a lot of people get kind of heated when we talk about, you know, fry bread and health and diabetes and stuff like that. And, you know, the people who are living with these problems or they got, you know, somebody in their house, a brother, a mom, a dad, a spouse who does suffer from diabetes. I mean, you're essentially saying, you know, oh, why don't you just change your whole life around? It's so simple. I did it. I mean, that's kind of like the the, the kind of feeling that um, uh, you see with, with some of that delivery. Um, how, how do we get around that sort of shaming aspect of uh, talking about health and talking about our ancestral foods to, to people who, yeah, struggle with that kind of access? This is a sensitive subject in the sense that we have to recognize the inequities first. Mm-hmm. We have to recognize that food has been used and is still continued to be used as a tool of the colonizer to keep us down. Not only historically, just think about historic, historically people that were displaced into reservations. One of the ways the, the government succeeded on that was by burning fields and then a slaughtering all the buffalo in the plains right Mm -hmm. so that's you know we have that history and nowadays it's a little bit different but it's still the same if you think about i like to use the soda example soda was introduced heavily and marketed heavily in mexico in the last few decades and now 
more people are gonna die of diabetes and other and other diseases than ever before. For me, that is an aggression, but that is a way that people are continuing to do that. In every poor community, in every community of people of color, indigenous, black or brown in the US, there's a good uh, chance that there's not enough grocery stores. That uh, in the Southwest, that you're gonna have to drive 40 to 80, 100 miles to go to, to go, go to a decent supermarket. If you're a, if you're an indigenous person in the inner city, it, there's a lot. It's a lot more likely that you're gonna have access to a lot of bodegas and a lot of food that is cheaper, but not good for you. If you are poor and working in the field and on a on a budget, you're a lot more likely that you're gonna have to buy food that is high in sodium, high in salt. High in, high in things that are not good for you. The people, the system has been set up for people to only have access to that food. What, what I do is I work a lot with food. I bring those things to the attention of everyone because that's really important. How, how do you expect at any age in any of our communities, how do you expect a child to go to kindergarten, first grade, middle school and learn when our children are hungry? And when kids are hungry, they're gonna eat junk. And when kids eat junk, they're going to get in trouble. And when they get in trouble, they go to detention. You see where I'm going with that? Mm-hmm. And then they end, they end up getting in more trouble and out of school, and you, and you maintain that cycle. And that cycle keeps going on as we, as, we, uh, as we grow and we have diabetes and we have obesity. But it's really important to recognize that it's not that we want to we wanna be unhealthy. Is that we live in a system that is designed for us to be unhealthy. I made it a point in recent years to make sure that I get away from the mentality mentality of shaming people and instead understand why that is happening and what what can I do, what can I do to improve that? Whether it's working in, in to to better school food or working in, on policy, what can we all do as community together? How, how can we all work together to uh, to improve that? This is a good opportunity to like highlight the really great projects that are going around the nation. Uh, you probably have have had some people on the on your podcast that are doing amazing work. Mm-hmm. Let's support that. Let's support this in the new farmers, especially the the new farmers in the indigenous communities. The new farmers, let's support the, uh, the new projects that have to do with fish, with wild rice, with syrup, with beans, with everything, everything that, goes, uh, that goes with the indigenous diets. It's not something that is easy, but it's something that is necessary if we're thinking about the future generations. And, every, and as I said before, everything is interconnected. An organization that I work really closely with, with is called, it's called HEAL, Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor. And if you think about what the food system is, is that. Health, meaning everything that we eat, is going to have an impact in our bodies. Environment. As indigenous peoples, we are at the forefront of the, of the environmental justice movement. Agriculture is, is the foundation of the food system, and, we have, to, and we, have to go, we have to care about how our food is grown and processed. Why is it that, that uh, in the Northeast, a uh, head of lettuce has to travel 12 1200 miles right there's so much that goes into the, into the into the into agriculture that we don't see but that it, that it exists in the US talking about this food issue we, in the US we have plenty of food we have more food than we need think about how we shop how I shop for food we usually buy a lot 
and we usually don't finish it. So we have uh, we have an obligation to uh, to think about that, about that and improve it. We started this conversation by talking about labor, about immigration and labor. So that's a, that is one of the main things that we have to work on and recognize as indigenous peoples in solidarity with people with the indigenous people the people working in the fields. The people have to be treated fairly. And one of the main things that, need, that can be improved is by making sure that people have access to food when they work in the fields. One thing that I uh, always think about when we're talking about, um, you know, just eating healthier and really getting involved with your food, I think about... Um, you know, of course, social media, because that's where all the young people are. Um, and, and you know, I, I really hope that young people, uh, young Native people out there are, um, like, really getting interested in Native food. I mean, I hope they see your photos and my photos and all these photos that the, you know, Native chefs out there are showing. I hope they think those are beautiful and those are awesome and those are cool, because I think that's one other um, resource that we have is uh, young people who are coming back home and they're all excited. They're like, mom, dad, look, look at this wild rice. You know, <laughs> I learned mm -hmm. about wild rice from chef Neftali or, or, you know, Sean Sherman over there and look, I want to try it. And they do try it and it becomes part of their diet. And, you know, they start learning about different ingredients. I mean, I hope that's part of you know, this food movement, too, of course, is young people getting excited, young people uh, bringing that back home, because that definitely happened in my family is I came out here, I got excited about food. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to learn how to cook everything and eat everything and find different flavors. And, you know, now my family, um, they like to eat different flavors, too. They, they love wild rice as much as I do. They like to, um, you know, try to work more with corn, um, ground corn. And we're starting to put, you know, starting to want to go back and reach, um, you know, to, to our elders, to our older people and ask them, you know, what, what, what were some of these foods that you had long time ago? Because, you know, because I was excited about it <laughs> as a yeah, young I mean, person. And that, is something, that is something really important to recognize. Forget about me. I cook because I love it and because I have to make a living and this mm -hmm. is my passion. But one, one thing that is even more important than, that, than, than what I do is the knowledge that is in every community. As you just mentioned, the knowledge that our elders have that we, that we oftentimes forget or like uh, don't recognize. Mm -hmm. We have to really think about uh, facilitating conversations between elders and younger people outside and in the kitchen and around the fire. And all of this, there's a lot of really exciting new, new projects going on all over, uh, all over Indian country. They have to do with fishing, with hunting, with traditional knowledge, with basketry with making canoes like everything that's that there is so much knowledge there that needs to be preserved and it has to do with food and it has to do with arts and crafts and the and there is technology that's a that's a beautiful thing and is this uh, we're living in really exciting times where uh, not only we have the opportunity to make those connections because of social media but also because uh, because of everyone that is 
not on this podcast, out there doing the work day in and day out. That was Mishteko chef Naftali Duran. Check out the iCollective on Facebook, and the website is iCollectiveInc.org. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes because it's the easiest way to support. It makes it easier for other people to find out about Toasted Sister. Another way to support is by going to ToastedSisterPodcast.com and sending a donation, or by buying a cool Toasted Sister coffee cup. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podcast Addict. Music was created for the Toasted Sister podcast by C.W. Ione. I hear he's coming out with a new album, so watch out for that. Check out his website at cwione.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. Mm-hmm.